Welcome to Rigo's Business Review, where we bring you the latest in leadership, business, and tech. I'm your host, Carl Rigo. Join us each week as we share unexpected insights and underreported stories from the world of business to inform, uplift, and inspire, and make you think. Hello, and thank you for joining the podcast this week. We've got a special treat. This, this time around, we have a, a special guest who's joined us. We're going to be talking about the importance of sales and marketing during business recovery and growth. As, we, as we've seen, there appear to be signs of economic renewal afoot in terms of uh, the Bloomberg reports that the manufacturing levels in Europe and China are above pre-pandemic levels. Not, that's not yet the case in the U.S. However, there are uh, optimistic uh, positive employment figures coming up there. Uh, given the speed of uh, vaccinations uh, that have been ramping up globally, the uh, OECD and other uh, financial forecasters have been raising their their expectations for the amount of growth that we expect to have this year, let's say uh, here in the West. And on that note, uh, I'd like to introduce my guest, uh, my colleague Jonathan Spence. Uh, we wanted to talk about this particular topic. So Jonathan, without further ado, just ask you if you would please introduce yourself and Tell us why uh, you suggested this topic. Thanks, Carl. Uh, Jonathan Spence here. Um, I'm an interim marketing director and consultant. I've been doing this for uh, 15 years. Prior to that, I worked for, um, in the corporate world for about 20 years, again, in, in marketing and strategy. Um, my particular emphasis is on actually um, a transformation, growth, and development. And I, I've worked across a wide range of sectors. Um, so, so for brands from actually um, Bang & Olufsen to Hyundai, from Lafroy to World Duty Free, from National Rail Enquirer to the Money Advice Service, from um, Dixon's to Immediate Media, and from Travelodge to Manchester Airport Group. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important that actually uh, we recognize the importance of sales and marketing to business turnaround, business recovery, and growth. Um, bottom line is the world's much more competitive um, many more products to buy, many more brands to buy. And the, the reality is the customer is, is the arbiter of, of, of success and failure. And I think, therefore, it's important that we actually recognize that sales and marketing play a fundamental role in, in, in recovery and, and growth. So, so without further ado, should we go to the questions, Carl? Sure, yes. Yeah. So uh, just to, to frame things, maybe this is probably a good place to, to mention this. So... As we all know, what, what the world economy and, and what we've been through from a, a personal uh, health and lives and livelihood perspective over the last year, uh, and so with the, the market, the economy seeming to be picking up, uh, we, we, we wanted to um, touch on this topic. It's quite timely because the preparation for a growth stage is really important, and, and uh, sometimes... Uh, studies show that companies, when they're kind of batting down the hatches and are, are really in, in cost-cutting and survival mode, uh, have a certain mindset. And then when we move into growth, the growth stage actually requires a different perspective. And sometimes, uh, sometimes if companies are a little slow off the mark to make that adjustment, they can get passed or leapfrogged by competitors who have already kind of put their pedal to the metal in anticipation of the, the uptick. So 
when we when we get into the questions here, we talk about so the first question I would like to ask you, Jonathan, kind of on that note. Oh, sorry, one other point. So the, yeah, like I said, the companies that that haven't thought through what their after they go through the survival stage, what, what will their subsequent growth strategy be, and how will they prepare for that? Uh, those companies that, that haven't thought that through ahead of time sometimes have trouble coming out of a, of a downturn as quickly as they otherwise could. So on that note, first question in general, uh, Jonathan, for you is why is it important to have a growth agenda? I think that there are the, 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 the some micro issues and some macro issues. Um, firstly, I think if one looks at the um, impact of COVID, it's I think generally people see it as having exacerbated underlying trends and take in particular the, the decline of retail, physical retail versus online. Um, and I think that the, 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 the macro trends are that over the last five, ten years, companies have become probably increasingly conservative, um, concerned about risk, concerned about actually um, making sure that, that, that they're making good investments. And I think that the challenge has been that actually therefore growth has become naturally um, less high up the agenda um, because, because growth by implication suggests actually a certain amount of investment and therefore a certain amount of risk. But you, you need a, a growth strategy um, because, put it bluntly, basic inertia is you either tend to grow or, or decline. Um, and clearly most companies don't want, you know, all companies don't want to decline, so they want to grow. Um, secondly, as you mentioned about the, com- the competitive environment, if you're not seeking to grow, other people will be. Um, for one reason or another, globalization, the internet, um, the number of competitors is increasing, and your, your, your position will be quickly overtaken by somebody who's prepared to do things that you're not. And finally, it's, I think it's worth saying that it's about actually uh, an internal side as well. It's much more um, positive, much more likely to attract good people and retain good people if you're a business which is growing rather than actually declining. Um, Clearly, there are certain cases where people are attracted by the opportunity to, to, to turn around a business and, and, and get uh, growth back in the renaissance. But actually, generally speaking, businesses which are declining are less attractive businesses to attract and retain good people. Um, and that, that includes actually investors as well. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, we will we'll talk about managed growth versus unbridled growth a bit later. Um, I think to, to carry on with your flow, Picking up on that, I mean, obviously that that seems to make sense, and I think that the part of part of that that may seem well that, that demands a reckoning or may seem a little counterintuitive for some people is the fact that w- with with growth we often need to prime the pump, right? We we often need to put something in in order to get something out. And yes, and I think, put it put it simply. And, and I mean, so if, if yeah, good. I just say it's you know the first principle of investment is actually you know um, the higher the return the likely higher risk you have to take. Um, clearly, actually, um, the, there's an issue perhaps that's been affecting most markets: commoditization. Um, businesses have been value engineering their, their products to hit price points. Clearly, that actually hits a good good feeling for, for the consumer, for the customer. But the danger is that it's not very good for profit. And I think one of the challenges is actually for most businesses. Is how do you get actually some 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 further margin into your business get, and get prices up? Because clearly prices have come down in most goods quite significantly, and it's good in the short term. But in the medium and long term, it will affect investment and affect even jobs. Right. Okay. So let's. Um, I, I agree with that. We'll, we'll come to, we'll come back to that that topic a bit later in the conversation. 
So if we move on to the next uh, next question for you, so what are the capabilities that companies need to grow? Companies and individuals, think, really, but what are the capabilities? Mm -hmm. I think it's it's like a football team. You need a variety of, of skills and, 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 and talents to, 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 to create a growth strategy. You obviously need a, a leader who actually inspires, drives, and focuses the team. Um, you also need a high degree of curiosity because certain times growth is quite straightforward. Markets are growing because of actually um, consumer primary demand. That clearly is something which you can capitalize upon. But for many businesses, it's about trying to find sources of growth. And that requires good insight. And good insight doesn't, just doesn't mean doing research. It means actually good interpretation, imaginative interpretation. And it means having curiosity to find things out. It's also a capability that is being very focused on the customer and understanding the customer. Um, the other capability that I think is important for growth is actually having a good cross-functional capability in the organization because it's, it's the, the old adage about the, the, the weakest uh, link in the chain defines the success. And I think actually cross-functional management is, is essential. But I think the other capability is, is, is that I would say is actually seeing the world differently. Most brands and businesses which have been successful see the world differently. You think of Apple, you think of Nike, you think of actually Dyson, these are, you think of Sky. These are brands and organizations which see the world differently. They, they see things where other people don't. Take Amazon, for example. Now, who would have thought they, that somebody would be making a, a big and significant uh, revenue uh, benefit from audio books? You know, audio books five, ten years ago were seen as old hat. Now, uh, Amazon have reinvented them and are making a lot of money out of them and, and giving a lot of satisfaction and happiness to, to many customers as well. So I think imagination is quite important. Um, think lateral thinking, seeing the world differently, because everybody can see what's in front of them. If the market's growing, everybody can see it. The real challenge is actually gaining growth where there shouldn't be necessarily growth. Take Fever Tree, the actual um, mixer drink. The, the, the mixer drink market was seen as flat, pardon the pun, um, and boring. Fever Tree came along and has driven a multi-billion pound business from seeing the world differently by, by saying to people, if you're going to actually have a premium spirit, don't waste it on, 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 a, on a lackluster mixer. You know, Complement it with a, with, a, with a quality mixer. So, so okay, so interesting uh, take there in terms of spotting an opportunity. So uh, the, the proverbial, they spotted what they saw as a, maybe a gap in the market, and then uh, just to come back and say what a colleague of mine who's trained in Arcadia and retail says, his mentor said to him, which is great, you found a gap in the market. Now is there a market in the gap? And with, and with Fever Tree there was. Just picking up on that, Jonathan, uh, in terms of perspective, you and I have talked before about the importance of thinking differently and how the the more the more broadly uh, the more broad your exposure to to different insights and inputs and people and the more your network and um, uh, outlook uh, kind of uh, crosses over and crosses other frontiers. Let's take a look at a Venn diagram. Innovation often takes place where those circles kind of overlap at the frontiers of of existing fields. So um, in terms of People with experience like you have and, and with experience like I have who have worked in a variety of industries, the geography, skills, and functions, uh, we have a different perspective. It kind of allows us to 
to, to help companies see around corners and things like that. Just, just a quote from Ogilvy, they said that a, a, new, a change in perspective is worth 80 additional IQ points. So I think that builds on your point there. If we can somehow look at the opportunities are all around us, right, and, and the, I'll put my executive coach hat on, right? If I say, if we are able to, last week's episode we talked about walking into this period of renewal with a renewed mindset. And uh, if we are able to, to do that, uh, whether it's through uh, having a state change or um, getting some coaching or, or, or tapping into some other innovation, it allow, when our perspective, perspective and perception of ourselves changes, then our view of the world changes, as does our, our understanding of our place within the, within the world. And when that happens, then you end up being able to talk about finding totally new blue oceans out there that are untapped because you're, 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 looking, you're able to see opportunities that, that maybe were there all along but have never been shaped before. So I'll pause there, turn it back over to you. But that's, uh, I agree on that point for sure. Uh, so, okay, so if we carry on then, um, Jonathan, some of the naysayers might say, well, or ostriches might say, well, in an uncertain world, is it better to not take any risks? Surely, surely we could all just stay in bed and pull the covers up over our heads and, and hunker down for longer? Well, yeah, you could do. And I'm sure it's very cozy and very warm. But, but the, meanwhile, everybody else is doing all sorts of things. So the risk you have doing nothing is that while you're doing nothing, your competitors are doing something. Um, that's its most basic. But it's... Um, in addition to that, I think it's you know, what's important is manage risk, is understanding the risks and understanding the opportunities. Um, and all, you know, some of the best ideas are not that risky because they're quite basic and straightforward. Um, I think I mentioned you know, fever tree. There are other examples. For example, um, if you take car tires, um, when you go and actually buy car tires from a website, any website, um, you put in your car registration plate and up come a list of tires to fit your car. And they're all, almost always um, in, in, in uh, price-sending order, so it's the cheapest tires first. So most people buy the cheapest tires. Simply put, if you put a few questions in to qualify the customer, for example, how many miles do you do, you A, you might be able to give them more reassurance that they're buying the right tire for their needs, but also you might be able to sell them a higher margin tire and make more profit. So... When we look at growth, it's not just about big ideas, it's about many small ideas as well. Um, fever tube is a big idea, the tire example is a small idea. Um, but actually, the level of risk obviously refers to the level of, of, of potential gain. The fever tube had a massive opportunity to gain, uh, the, the tire example is a, is a smaller opportunity. Um, but I think the danger is if, if one's not careful, saying about an uncertain world, one won't, won't do anything. Um, the world's always been uncertain. And indeed, Harvard Business Review, the Harvard Business Review had an article last year saying how important it was for companies to start to try and shape the future rather than be shaped by it. Uh, again, if you look at most brands that have been successful, they've, they've tried to shape the, the, their markets, their, their world, their environments. Um, because the problem with actually trying to respond to an uncertain world that way is actually you, you, the world will probably always outpace you. You've got to try and actually try and understand your market, your, the future, and, and actually try and influence it and actually make sure that you're ahead of the game. Um, now, clearly, some brands actually don't want to do that, um, and they would be the, the classic follower brands. Um, 
who will actually always want to see what other people are doing. The challenge with that is actually if things change rapidly, if, if the leaders change things rapidly, your ability to keep up could be actually too, too slow and too late. Um, and again, what is a risk? It's, um, I think one, one of the dangers actually, you see risk is negative. Uh, risk is actually also positive. Risk is about actually saying, creating change and transformation. Um, for example, is it actually a big risk putting, a, putting investing in the internet? Um, probably five years ago, people might have said yes, but now they wouldn't. The risk changes over time. Yes. Um, so just chiming down some notes, one other related quote to, to capture the dynamic you're talking about from my perspective, uh, from an organizational change and transformation perspective and just a, a business agility perspective is the, the key exam question for companies is to look and see uh, how, they, how their, internal, their internal rate of change, their ability to adapt uh, internally compares with the pace of change externally. And if there's too big of a delta there, if they're not able to respond as quickly as the environment is, is shifting, then you can really end up having trouble. And now, obviously, when this pandemic first hit, uh, many, the whole world was pretty much caught off guard, so everyone had to adapt and adjust. And, and there, were, there were many businesses and organizations and countries that found themselves, frank, frankly, stranded in some ways in, in terms of, you know, uh, far away from certain uh, support and, and, and assets and, and resources that they, they may need. Now we're about a year on from that, and, and uh, from, from organizations, aside from the, the, the toll it's taking on, on, on people's lives and, and things, um, on a, which has been, been, been a huge tragedy. From, a, from an economic perspective, when we look at businesses, it has, it has wrought uh, Certain, certain effects, right? I mean, the, when the pandemic first hit, we talked about, it basically revealed that any company, all companies are, are, um, fell, fell into one of three categories. It's the famous quote was that Warren Buffett says, you know, the tide, tide goes out, that you can, you can realize who's swimming, you know, maybe who may be skinny dipping versus is in bathing suits, right? And, and uh, when the pandemic hit, it hit so suddenly that uh, it revealed three categories of companies, I would say. One were those who were uh, thriving and investing, and that was largely based on the strength of their existing balance sheet and their cash flows. And were they in industries that were strategically well positioned, so tech and healthcare, let's say. And then there were those who were uh, so the uh, thriving and investing, and then there's surviving and pivot, uh, surviving and pivoting. So businesses that were maybe looking to make it, maybe had dipped their toe in the water with moving online, and then had to accelerate it. And as Microsoft CEO said, they ended up doing. Microsoft did two years' worth of digital transformation work in about two months when the pandemic first hit. And then you had the companies, the third category were those who were, um, they would say, diving or, or distressed and uh, are, were seriously considering the viability of their business model and their industry. So, uh, again, I mentioned that in the context of saying it revealed uh, there were some structural issues which could not have been foreseen for certain industries, no doubt. And then for the average business, it definitely revealed what their uh, odometer said in terms of how quickly they could change and adapt internally versus in comparison to the state of external change. So pause there. Uh, Jonathan, I wanted to ask you, uh, one thing that I really uh, like, one thing that I've, I've really uh, appreciated that, that you've shared with me in the past was as a marketeer, the way that you, the way that you segment 
customer groups or, and markets, and just in terms of uh, turnover of companies, would you, where would it make sense to touch on that in this conversation, if at all? I just think it's, help, it's a helpful way to kind of frame and give a little bit of nuance, because we're going to get into the rest of the questions here around, are you really customer focused, and what's the view on M&S growth strategy and some other things. But I wanted to maybe share with the audience the way you view the, the world in terms of the stratification in, in, in companies. Would you be comfortable sharing some headlines on that? You know what I'm yeah. talking about, right? Uh, yeah, I think what we can – let's try and bring into the – are you really customer-focused? And if we can't okay. bring into that, we'll, we'll, okay. we'll try and do it a different way. Okay, so yeah, we can, move, we can segue to that now because that's, that's where we are in the running order here. <laughs> and if it doesn't work, we'll, we'll, we'll come back and do it in a different way. Okay, sure. Yeah, so, so actually we're at that point where we say – you know, if you ask if you ask a business, are you really customer focused? What do we mean by that, and um, how can we tell? And then somewhere in the conversation, if we can weave in your Jonathan's view of the world on market segmentation, great. Okay, so should I go? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, well, you, it's a really good question, Carl. Um, about are you really customer focused? Because a lot of people think we do market research, we listen to customers, therefore we're customer focused. But that. Unfortunately, it's not necessarily the answer. To be really customer-focused, you need to really understand your, your customers. You need to understand the differences uh, between, between them, the different segments, um, what drives some and, 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 and drives others. Uh, customers who actually you actually want to target, customers you don't to target. Um, I mean, the classic case is Marks and Spencer, which is always been actually one of its biggest issues being actually is it actually targeting the right customer um, but actually in, in trying to become more customer focused it's about about doing the research getting the insight and, and, and being curious and imaginative and actually trying to really understand what the implications are of one of, of one piece of action because take for example um, a retailer um, they might decide they want to take out a particular product category because it's not making enough money. The challenge is actually how important is that, that product category to actually sealing the proposition to, to, to all, all its shoppers as being the place to go. So unfortunately, it's, customer focus is not just saying, actually, we've listened to the customer, they've told us this. Sometimes it's also a matter of trying to understand underneath what they really mean and actually try and draw them out and actually try and um, help actually shape, shape their thoughts. Um, the, the challenge that actually um, uh, most people have with being customers is sometimes it's doing things which actually don't necessarily mean immediate payback. Um, they're, they're doing things which actually have a long-term implication. Um, example, a great example from some years ago, uh, to be truthful, but I think that actually demonstrates being customer-focused was in, in the 90s when BMW introduced a new uh, 7 Series, um, top of the range model for, for the brand, and um, they, they found that actually the engine started pinking, um, so hiccups in the engine, if you like. And um, the reason was actually nothing to do with BMW's technology. It was down to the fact that actually petrol companies had changed the, um, the specification of petrol. What did BMW do? They wrote to all their customers and said, this is not your fault, um, it's not our fault, but we're going to replace the, every single engine of every single 70s we've just, we've just sold at a cost of £2,500. Now, you had great um, uh, customer uh, reaction. 
he also had great PR because that suddenly was making the, 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 page, the page of the major newspapers about what a great thing BMW had done. Now, fast forward now, um, you recently had certain companies saying they were going to repay the government for their furlough uh, uh, support because they, they didn't feel they needed it. Companies doing that mm-hmm. actually will... Mm-hmm. And sorry, yeah. which companies were that? I, I, we, didn't, uh, we didn't catch that. Which companies were they? Uh, I think it was uh, Denelm and uh, I, I think Tesco made them as, so as well. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I need to check on that, Carl, actually. So, sure, that's okay. No, I, thought, I thought you had mentioned it in the call. It just broke up a little bit. We have the, the technical challenges today, that's all. Now, clearly, that's actually not just about being customer-focused, but, but it spills over into being great, great, a piece of work to actually talk about the um, social um, uh, thoughts of, of those brands because they, they, they want to be seen to be caring for their communities and, and being, being good citizens. And I think that's you know, one of the things that's happening increasingly is that a lot of customer focus is being driven by the sustainability um, issue and the need to actually recognize that you can't carry on just dumping loads of stuff in, in, in landfill. Um, you've got to actually start thinking about actually how you solve this business chronic problem, which is, is coming up fast behind COVID. Sure. Yeah, the, the sustainability sustainability is a whole huge topic for me personally with, with my, uh, my career and my background. I'm really passionate about that subject. We'll definitely pick up on that. Um, so, okay, and did you, did you want to mention when we, when we talked previously, you had talked about the, the M&S, uh, their growth strategy in particular in terms of some of the choices they've made recently. Do you want to give a little more color to that, and then maybe I can add some comments on the sustainability front. Yeah, I mean, I think the MS growth strategy is a really interesting um, uh, case because actually you know, the, the problems of MS are well documented, um, particularly in, in the it, – it's, it's, it's doing very well in food, but actually much more poorly in, in, in the household and clothing um, area. So, and they've gone for a very interesting online strategy, um, and that is actually to start saying they're going to – Start selling other brands. Um, now, that's 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 in, interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly, because uh, how do you select the brands you're going to go on with? Is it the brands which actually accord to who you currently actually have as your customers, or who you'd like to have as your customers, um, or both? Um, secondly, a lot, a lot of it, this, this strategy I'd say is taken from the consumer electronics market with people like Carrier's PC World, where effectively you use the brands, um, you've got a house of brands. And the challenge I would suggest for m and going to be, there are many more clothing brands out there than consumer electronics brands. Um, and the, they each have their nuances, they each have their, their fans. So it's, it's more difficult to select a limited number of brands um, to sell alongside the own label. Um, and that, that, that's going to be quite challenging, how they manage the relationship with those brands and with both of the customer and with the suppliers. The final thing is what it really brings home very loud and clear is what we all know. The strength of the brand is important. M&S has a, has a weak brand in clothing now, or a weaker brand. But actually, you, if you've got a strong, if you've invested to continually uh, uh, rebuild and, and renew your, your, your brand, um, you wouldn't be faced by these problems. Unfortunately, Mark Spencer have got into the situation where they've never, they've not addressed the problem for many years. But I wish them luck with it, their strategy. I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's bold and innovative strategy. Whether it will succeed, time will tell. Okay. So 
for just touching on the sustainability front, just a couple stats, which I'm sure some, some of the, our audience members may be familiar with. So in terms of obviously um, sustainability has, has really come into its own. I, I got into the field around 2006, seven, right after, just happened to be right after Al Gore, the Convenient Truth movie had come out, and I, I joined uh, one of the princes, uh, Prince Charles's um, uh, nonprofit organizations that was actively campaigning on um, what they call responsible business practices. And uh, so, but since that time, right in the last 14, 15 years, in the last 10 years, it, things have really moved ahead. So now, you know, there's some stats that say 64% of millennials say they will not work for a company that doesn't have strong social responsibility practices. And so what about that is millennials will make up 75% of the workforce by 2025. And then 60% of customers or consumers say that they expect companies they buy from to make a stand to, 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 uh, to make a stand on climate and environmental issues. And um, one other point I would make in terms of we've known for a while now that the investment community, the big institutional investors have been paying attention to this in terms of um, like, let's say uh, carbon uh, reporting and things like that. Uh, more recently, the uh, the big private equity players have been saying that uh, a gentleman who who just raised a, a company that just raised a billion dollar clean tech uh, clean energy fund just said that it used to be a case where the thinking used to be that in order to be sustainable, you had to be profitable first, and then you could worry about the sustainability stuff. Now, for companies thinking in the, the impairments in particular, the thinking is now, in order to be profitable, you need to be sustainable, environmentally and socially sustainable, which makes perfect sense. But that, that is seen as a real coming of age and paradigm shift and sea change, which has been a long time coming. So uh, we can talk more about that. What, what I would say is, what we always used to say, is the companies that take, and actually M&S was a leader in this space back, back when they did their plan A and things, but those companies that, that look at how the exam question for companies in this space is how do you continue to grow your business in a world of finite resources, right? So you, we could, companies can no longer avoid this topic or ignore the situation. Otherwise, they will be leapfrogged by their competitors who are taking this as a strategic imperative. So there, there's lots more to say on that subject. In terms of growth and uh, sustainable growth and managed growth, um, looking at it through a, uh, an environmental, social, and governance or people, planet, prosperity lens is, is crucial now, and we're going to have a number of shows devoted to that for sure. So I just wanted to kind of share that. So, okay, so as we segue now, Jonathan, for the, the latter part of the, the conversation here, shall we move and talk about this, the, um, this kind of question around should companies aim for kind of growth at all costs, or let's say the sustainability challenge aside in terms of a managerial and operational perspective, should companies look to, to grow as fast, as quick as they can, or should they look to take a managed growth approach? I've got some, some comments on this. I'm, Jonathan, feel free to come in if you want to make a few, a few statements, and then I'll, I'll have some other comments as well I can add to that. Okay. Um, well, I think, I think it's, uh, again, a really good question, Carl, because, again, uh, Ideally, you want to, to, to manage your growth so that you can control it. Um, but sometimes you can't. Um, you know, sometimes actually the demand, you just create something which you, you can't control. Um, the key issue is actually making sure that you react swiftly 
and responsibly, and and you, you put in place the the uh, systems and mechanisms to ensure that actually uh, it doesn't happen to the same extent again. But I think one of the one of the, one of the, the real challenges with actually um, growth is actually you know, forecasting is, is the hardest art of all because actually yes, there's a lot of science in it, but actually if, you, if you're dealing with something which is actually new and unknown. Um, it's very difficult to get a, a sensible answer from consumers. You know, projective research is always the most difficult because you're asking people to actually say whether they'll buy something which they've never even probably thought about or heard of. So there's always a risk there. Um, but actually where you therefore need to put your emphasis on and making sure that actually the, the potential pressure points um, are covered off um, and actually you, you, you've got a system in place which means you're, you're aware where there's overheating quite rapidly. Um, the, uh, I think the, um, the sustainability is also quite key there as well because, again, um, you want to be seen to be doing the right thing um, the way you do it. Um, so, again, I suggest actually it shouldn't be something which should, should actually hold you back. It's something you should be fairly, you should be mindful of, and ensure that you're a responsible uh, company. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I'll just add some some additional nuance there as well, picking up on what you said. So the, yeah, the from my perspective, the way that I see it, uh, building on on those comments is, so from a managed growth, um, okay, think about the spirit of managed growth. It's kind of intentional. Uh, intentional growth. Let's say managed growth is like curating a garden, a garden, whereas unmanaged growth is like letting a thousand flowers bloom and frankly having a forest and you've got weeds and, and all kinds of uh, biodiversity in there, which is fine uh, depending on what the outcome, what the aim is. Let's say we're talking metaphorically for a business, right? Obviously, we love the great outdoors. Uh, but there are some kind of, if, if you're in the, the flower, if you're in the rose business, and you've let your whole, if you're, let's say that you are metaphorically in the roses business, but then you, you let your business get into all these other peripheral and ancillary sorts of markets where you're looking at lilies and now you're looking at fruits and vegetables. And well, you, you, you completely shifted, you know, you, you may end up, um, you know, sometimes companies expand too broadly geographically and, and then they realize actually we can't, we, we, don't, we haven't honed our operating model to such a degree that we can, if we can effectively and efficiently run our company here. So it's actually called, we're putting more money in, and then we're getting out, and we do that for a long enough time. It's not sustainable. But the, the, the big question is the reason why I wanted to raise this topic is companies like um, Amazon and Netflix and then, let's say, Uber and Work took the, took the um, growth approach for this. Actually, we're going to talk about this other topic here, which is um, looking at growth versus just profitability as looking at growth, growth saying growth is a new profitability, which relates to this kind of growth at all costs, you know, just expand as quickly as you can as a land grab so you, you get network effects uh, and you build a big moat because you've got more users and you, you've got a, a well-known brand that others can't come in and compete with per se. That's one side of it. But just coming back to this here, the, one of the, the rationales for taking a managed growth approach is to avoid essentially overtrading. So let's say, for example, you are in a business that has a long – it talks about your cash conversion cycle and things like that. Let's say that you're in a business that has a long sales lead time. So let's say if, if you're selling into big corporate enterprises and things, uh, it may take you 6, 12, 18 months to, to close a sale if you're doing enterprise SaaS, let's say, which 
you know, just, just to say that it takes a little while to sell into a big corporate. If on the back end it, you have to make a lot of commitments, let's say you're a business process outsource or something, and, and you need to have facilities lined up, but let's say you're selling into big corporates, but you're doing business process outsourcing, because SaaS is great in terms of the lead time, but not the best example in terms of cost capital. Um, but if you, if you are an outsourcing business and, and you go in and help companies handle their financial claims and things like that, you then need to have your own facility or places or, or contract with others. You need to have lots of resources lined up to be able to deliver on that contract when it finally gets agreed and approved and closes. But if your expenses on the back end are so high uh, that you have to put too much in up front and then you don't get paid back for it until many months down the road, if you sell in a bunch of those projects, let's say to pay the money to do the marketing, the, the, the promotional work, and all that is costing you. If your cost of deployment, if your, if your cost of sales is too high, it's, it's quite high, and you have a long lead time, sales cycle long lead time, takes you a long time to collect on the money to get the best of the money. You could end up having a cash flow pinch, even if you're a fast growth business, which is similar, sort of similar sort of thing that some would say that work faced. They, over, they, they invested so much to grow, and then they didn't actually, they couldn't cover the cost of that expansion, uh, for example. So I think, but on the other side, if you look at Amazon and Netflix, Amazon, uh, we talked about such a business before, but Amazon famously uh, took them seven years to turn their first profit. They were, uh, before that, they had famously lost money for their first 17 straight quarters as a public company. They went public a few years after they formed. So they had lost $2.8 billion as a public company. But they, their approach was to take every, basically every extra cent they had and plow it into growth and development of additional capability, distribution networks, new products, new services, being customer-focused, and all of that, until they finally built such an infrastructure that now they're basically, um, they have such a moat that they're almost, it's an almost insurmountable uh, hill for other competitors to climb. We could talk about the... Um, possible anti-competitive implications of that. But, so in terms of um, that, that's a, Amazon and Netflix both are successful examples of companies that prioritize growth over profits in the early days. In fact, it took Netflix, just looking at, uh, I also have an, another little um, story here about Netflix we talked about before. Um, so Netflix, um, for, for many years people wondered if, if uh, some investors wondered if it were some observers Wondered if it was um, just a, what they would call like a debt-ridden house of cards. It had borrowed $16 billion since 2011 uh, and to, to keep building content and things like that. And they were signing up new users, but uh, even though the profits weren't there, they were signing up lots of new users and investors rewarded them with higher valuations and things. Ultimately, uh, earlier this year, Netflix reached uh, kind of operational, operational uh, sustainability in terms of um, – being able to have enough cash flow from operations to be able to fund themselves. They're now cash, sustainable cash flow positive. But it took, it's daunting because they didn't become cash, free cash flow, a positive free cash flow business until they reached 200 million subscribers, and that took over 20 years. So it is a big risk for those companies if you're taking just the, the growth over profit, um, if, if growth is a new profit angle. And then also you, you may have to um, navigate some pretty choppy seas in the markets as well during that time frame, which could leave you high and dry, so to speak. Uh, but just to say, um, so yeah, so the, the, the other example I gave about overtrading, uh, if you have a high cost, customer acquisition cost, and, and, um, and then a long sales cycle 
or it takes you a while to collect the money, is you can end up having liquidity and cash flow challenges. We can, can pause that. So I don't know if you'd add anything to that, Jonathan, but those are some of my thoughts on it. I think the thing I, w- I, think, I, think I would add, Carl, is actually I think there's um, one of the things people forget is actually uh, you know, when, when you're trying to grow a business long term, it's not just one investment, you've got to continue to invest. Um, so take online. A lot of people have historically thought online is very cheap to trade on, and it's quite expensive. The second thing is people have thought, you know, they build a website and that's the job done for the next X number of years. What they forget to realize is that you need to uh, update, upgrade, and develop the website and the other digital channels uh, regularly and quite expensively, make them actually really actually deliver what they're expected to. So I think the um, part about the, the the management of growth is actually recognizing that it's not just a question of spending a million pounds now and getting you know, lots of money down the line. There's a million pounds now you could invest, a million pounds probably next year, probably the next year after that, and maybe in 10 years' time as well. So I think it's recognizing that um, you know, being objective and recognizing the true dynamics of actually um, of growing it to actually to keep you. To grow, to grow, you've got to keep growing. And actually, to do that, you've got to keep investing. The trick is actually making sure that, that you get that in sync. Right. Okay, and on, on the note here of growth, I wanted to talk about some of the stats that you and I have chatted about before, which is um, I, I attend a lot of um, uh, workshops and seminars, and, and I have a lot of um, business. I am a mentor and I have business mentors as well. And there's one gentleman who I follow. His name is Daniel Priestley, and uh, he runs he runs a business called Dent, and it is an accelerator for small and mid-sized companies uh, that helps basically helps them grow, helps um, people with certain expertise to go to market and really scale and build a business that is less dependent and that's not so dependent on just trading time for money. You build assets, then you can you know, share and serve and, and sell digital assets and things like that. So you take our expertise and reach a much broader audience, let's say. So it's on the subject of growth. Uh, Daniel mentioned some, some findings from his uh, research, uh, having, having worked with over 5,000 companies and having also done research on what, what seems to work in markets and, and from an asset manager's perspective as well. And they found that the most successful, the, the fastest growing companies, let's say, aside from just straight tech businesses, were those who the rule of thumb was that they spent between five to nine percent of their uh, turnover, their revenue, on advertising, not not their marketing budget, just advertising. So they spent five to nine percent on on advertising, and so they also said that for that that whole that holds for fast growth businesses in the U.S. that are uh, maybe up to around turning over around twenty million dollars a year. And the, that's interesting. So if you have a if you have a small business and you're turning over a million pounds, if you have a million pounds in revenue, then seven percent of that would be seventy grand a year you would be spending in advertising. Now if you want to grow the business, uh, the the suggestion is then if you want to grow that business to be two million turnover, then you Daniel's research would say that if you if you've proven out that your marketing approaches uh, work, then if you, to, you'll get to that two million pound turnover faster if you actually invest seven percent of your desired revenue in advertising rather than just doing seven percent of the million pounds, so seventy grand a year, to try to grow your way to the two million turnover. Actually, 
this research shows that you will, all things being equal, if you've proven that you're advertising, you likely stand a better chance of getting them more quickly if you actually spend at the rate as if you already had that, um, that two million turnover on advertising if you have proven methods that can help you get there sooner, which I thought was interesting. And just one other point tangentially for, for those in the audience who, for our listeners who may have uh, their, their own businesses, many do. Again, if you're in the, in the, if you do a lot of selling online or if you create content, there are a rule of thumb in the, um, in the online spaces. They say that if you spend however much time and or money you spend on producing content, products, let's say, the rule of thumb there is you spend four times as much time and or money amplifying the assets and messages you've already created, which is really interesting. If I'm going to say with this podcast, I've not been following that. I'm not been doing if you think about when you, if someone's doing a job on search, job search, then they may create their CV, they may create some videos and things like that, and then we certainly do spend a lot of time and effort promoting it, don't we? So I know, Jonathan, you had some other thoughts on that from what you've seen in other um, areas of marketing. Yeah, I mean, I mean the rule of thumb with, with, with sponsorship, for example, of, of actually whether that's actually sport or, or not, is that generally um, the investment that you put into the asset, the, the, the actual sponsorship, should we say, is actually has to be uh, complemented by a, a further threefold uh, investment in the uh, activation side. Um, and that clearly, you know, it gets back to the, seeing the, the reality that actually to invest money, you have to make sure that you, you have enough money to invest to what you want, but also make sure you do it uh, properly. And the dangers are uh, all too obvious that actually you spend a lot of money on actually sponsoring a football club and you don't actually get the benefit because you haven't exploited it. Um, so I think that's you – know, those figures don't surprise me, Carl, um, that you quoted – I think it's, um, it gets back to about what are the capabilities you need for growth. Getting back to that question, that's one of the capabilities is actually understanding how markets operate, both generically and specifically, recognizing actually what you've got to do to actually um, deliver that, 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 that the growth, um, and actually making sure that you have the, the people on board to do it. Um, because again, getting back to over-trading and, and managed growth, uh, there's nothing worse than actually saying, we wish we knew actually what was going on, but we just didn't have the, the people in place at the moment. Um, because actually, systems are great, but actually people actually are what are, are vital for growth as well. Because it's about trying to humanize the, the, um, the relationship with your, your customer to actually deliver more, more sales and more profit. Makes sense. So just as we, as we turn toward the final um, stage of the, of the conversation for today at least, I, I wanted to touch on, um, talk about how, how companies can assess their business environment, business environment and choose an appropriate strategy. So uh, I touched on this I think in a, prior, in a prior episode where I said that one, one understanding or description of strategy is that it's a the fit between an organization and its environment. And when, when the environment shifts, as has happened with COVID and as is happening again with the economy, looking as though we're headed for uh, an uptick and renewal stage, when that external environment shifts, companies then need to reassess their, they need to uh, sense check their understanding of how they're reading uh, the external environment and then also review that their, their, corresponding strategy to that environment. 
right? So uh, just in general, there are um, kind of three main dimensions that companies, so when you're assessing the external environment, companies can look at it from, from three main dimensions, which are the degree to which they can shape or influence it, uh, the degree to which they can predict it, kind of high or low, can they, you know, can they shape it a little or a lot, can they predict it? You know, some certain industries are, are more stable than others, those with uh, infrastructure utilities, for example. Uh, and then the, the third dimension is how, kind of how harsh is the environment. So when the COVID pandemic hit, that, that threw much of the world into a very harsh trading environment, uh, and therefore that, and um, therefore they, they had a, companies had to choose an appropriate corresponding strategy for that. So the, the so what about this is that um, for any of those combinations of, let's say, there's a, a company assesses that their environment is such that they, they can't really shape it very much, uh, but they, that they can predict it. And that's kind of a classical sort of approach where the, the, the strategic intent that they would have would be to be big. They can invest because they can predict it. Even if they can't really shape it so much, they can at least predict it. And the bigger they get, then they have some confidence that those investments will pay off in terms of economies of scale and things like that, as one example. Whereas, um, let's say, if that's not a, if that's not a harsh uh, environment in general, that's just one approach. But the point I'm making is uh, companies need to, when it comes time to grow, I guess let me step back and say this. When, when a company experiences an external shock like the world experienced uh, last year when the pandemic began, that changed their external environment and therefore thrust a lot of companies into a harsh environment, which meant they needed to batten down the hatches and go into a kind of recovery and renewal mode. Uh, now, as the economy is shifting again, where the, the level of harshness is kind of going down, they need a, a growth strategy. Now there's a different approach to that. And it's important that companies keep an eye on the, that rate of change externally so that they, then, they can actually not just respond, but ideally anticipate and get in front of it. So that's, I suppose, if I were to give a quick answer to the question, it would be how can they assess the environment, use those three dimensions, look at the degree to which the company can influence it, can we shape it to a, a greater or less degree, and can we predict it? And then it kind of overarching is how harsh is the environment in terms of is it, a, is it an existential sort of threatening situation or not. So I can kind of pause there. I don't know if you, if you would add to that, Jonathan. Well, I think the first thing you said, actually, you know, um, every company is in a different situation um, and, and actually uh, will have different environmental issues. So um, uh, you know, there, a lot depends actually on what the specifics of the company are. But I think it's, you know, what's therefore important is that you assess the business environment in the context of, of you as a business, not in terms actually generically, but say, um, you know, what, what, what is happening in the business environment? Actually, what does that mean for you? What, what are your strengths and weaknesses to deal with it? Um, I think the, um, there's, a, there's a danger, as I said before, that actually um, people see that you know, the business environment is something that they, they can't influence. Again, you, you, there's no point in trying to do things or trying to do things that you can't actually succeed at. So you can't actually influence the big macro issues, but sometimes you can actually influence the smaller issues, and that's 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 important that, that that's done. Um, but I think the, the, the again, is the business environment any more difficult now than 30 years ago? And arguably, um, you'd probably say no. Um, 
what we have got now, those actually probably better um, management techniques, better actually uh, um, understanding uh, to actually deal with, with the problems. Um, and that, that's probably quite um, reassuring, I think, going forward. Um, but again, you know, what I think is critical is, is the personality and character of the organization, how it feels about actually what it wants to be. Um, companies that want to be um, very much actually a leader will actually have a different view on this versus those who want to be a, a fast follower. Right. So just looking also, picking up on that, just to say some of the, just as we wrap up, some just some tips and traps for companies that are, again, coming coming out of a, this difficult period and they're looking to grow, they're looking to kind of renew their strategy, or, or it's a renewal phase where they're, they're, they've gone through the stabilization, they've kind of recovered, and now there's this coming. What, what can they keep in mind? So just, just some, some kind of best practices here that, that we've seen is to be sure to kind of envisage the future and see and communicate what that future looks like and determine which kind of growth strategy you want to, you want to take now and be really communicative about that. It's like the Jack Welch thing about repeat, repeat the vision ad nauseum. Make sure people understand that the current situation uh, will not last forever, and actually we have plans for beyond this. And um, you know, be sure to also inspire hope in the sorts of communications that, that, that you make as a company, let's say to your staff and to other stakeholders. So tell the story of the, the long-term vision that you have for the business, and, um, and also obviously hopefully as companies had, had been going through this change process, they were uh, finding some quick wins and things like that to reinforce the fact that this is the direction of travel. Talk about that. And then in terms of just some things to be aware of, some traps is as you're going through this kind of stabilization and recovery and then renewal processes, um, sometimes companies get some early wins and then they declare victory prematurely when they've kind of gotten through the first, the first hurdles, but then they, they fail to, like we said before, they fail to declare or develop a, the next stage of, of, of the strategy, which is focused on innovation and growth rather than just a status quo. That's the other thing, which is many businesses have said, oh, we can't wait for things to get back to normal initially. Well, actually, as everyone says, there's kind of a new normal here, and the old, for many industries, the old ways of working may never come back in their, in their prior forms. So, which is the, the other trap here is around legacy thinking. So if companies, this is what I said before about walking through this renewed environment with a, with a renewed mindset, if, if companies fail to kind of shed their old core assumptions and practices for their kind of legacy business models and habits, then they can end up having um, a hard time climbing this new kind of mountain of opportunity. And then the other, the other comment uh, that I would make is companies, sometimes there's a bit of a, uh, a lack of proportionality. So sometimes companies, when they're going through difficult times, they, they, they cut, they, they'll make quick cuts courageously, uh, but then they, after those initial promising moves, and maybe they pilot some new approaches, they, they may take some steps that are not sufficiently bold enough to address the scale of the challenge or capture the, the size of the opportunity. So that's, that's for some research from um, Boston Consulting Group. I just wanted to share a little bit of that. So just, with, just things to keep in mind for companies. And we obviously would like to end on a positive note. So Jonathan, I'm going to turn it over to you uh, in a moment and say, where, where do we see some more bright spots and green shoots, and, and what should companies bear in mind as we go into the next 
next couple of months and the next quarter and this year? I, th- I think there are some good green shoots. I mean, I think it's um, you can you can almost feel the um, visceral sort of desire of consumers to get back and spending money, um, and that's great. I think the key thing will be actually how companies maintain that 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 upside and keep it going and actually develop from it. It uses a springboard for, for long-term growth. I think the um, what I think is exciting is I think the um, You've got a lot of new, new, newish brands and concepts that are beginning to appear. I think you've got some, some potentially interesting things going to happen as well. So, for example, um, I think esports is, 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 is being well documented as being in massive growth. What we haven't thought through is actually what will esports mean for retail, for example? Does it doesn't mean there could be actually an esports retail concept because it's about community as much so actually as um, as participation. So, I think there's um, there be some exciting developments. Um, I think also there is a um, a sense that actually companies now need to be bolder and braver because I think the the, the, da- the danger is that they, they get caught in the trap of actually being 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 sucked into into a vortex of doing nothing, you know, staying in bed. That you analogy earlier. And I think actually. There's there sufficient activity already evident that actually if you don't do something and, and show some bravery, then somebody else will do so. So I think the um, I think which sectors I think um, I think most sectors have got some opportunity. Um, I think there's some challenges in all this because clearly you know we see for example electric cars being a great uh, a bright uh, spot for the future, but there's some big challenges there. And I, I think one of the things that for me is, is essential is that companies need to start getting consumers back into buying quality products with, with, with uh, appropriate prices. Um, having just trying to sell people the cheapest product time and time again is not good for the environment for that, the reason landfill. It's not good for the business because it's thin margins. It's not good for the consumer because all they're doing is just buying more and more stuff and actually spending more money in the long run. Um, so. I think for me that the, the, the big upside actually how you can get people to think about actually buying uh, quality products rather than just actually the cheapest. Um, I think that's the long run uh, uh, escape from actually um, uh, deflation and and and, uh, and commoditization. Interesting. So I, I would add to that just as we talked about sustainability earlier. I mentioned that I was on a call. The Guardian had a had a call with. Um, Mark Carney this week with about a thousand people on it for his book launch, and I did order the book. I had, I got it. It arrived on the day from Amazon. It arrived the day that it was released. It's called Values, Value, and then S with an S on the end in parentheses. And um, so Mark Carney mentioned that he mentioned lots of things, but uh, this is back to me talking about the, the sea change in terms of the mindset. And, and I always say if we, if we follow the money, right, you can you can understand a lot of dynamics by following the money. So. Some things that have changed is a lot of big investors and asset managers that have uh, funds and portfolios are beginning to assess the projects within their portfolios that they've invested in based on the contribution of those projects to climate change. So, for example, ideally, the main if comp- ideally funders would rebalance toward projects that have a, an impact of helping uh, the world stay within one and a half to two percent maximum 
warmer, uh, degrees warmer than we are now. And so Mark Carney mentioned that when they assess the Bank of England's portfolio and their holdings, their portfolio, those projects actually were, were tracking more to contribute to, to a three and a quarter percent increase in the temperature around the globe. So actually even the Bank of England had to go back and rethink their approach to the projects and assets that they wanted to support. And maybe there's a bit, bit of rebalancing that can happen there. So just, just to say, so I think that, that's encouraging back to how can we continue to grow our businesses uh, or, or have vital businesses in a world of finite resources and how can we you know, solve for not just profit but solve for people, planet, prosperity in, in a sustainable ongoing way. I think that bodes well, aside from the other stats we quoted before. So, so Jonathan, we're just, just wrapping up now, and I want to turn to you to say thank you so much for, for joining us. I think it's been really fascinating, and uh, I appreciate your insights because you've got experience from, from different sectors and functions and, and, and a unique perspective. So uh, if there's anything else you'd like to add, uh, let us know. And then also tell us how people can get in touch with you and, and uh, keep up with what you're doing. Thanks, Carl. It's been really enjoyable today, and actually um, some really good questions and really good points of view, um, some very uh, challenging ideas as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from people because actually I think one of the, the, the things I enjoy more than anything is actually having conversations with people because you find out so much. Um, and all the great things are going on rather than necessarily all the bad things that, that, that are going on. Um, get in touch with me. I'm on LinkedIn uh, under Jonathan Spence. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, you know, on my telephone number is 079-850-74310. Always happy to take a call and uh, happy to help in any way that I can. Uh, thanks again for this, for, this, uh, for this session. Well, thank you again for joining us, and, and thank you to our audience for being a part of the conversation today. That's all for this episode. Tune in next time for the latest insights and hidden gems from the world of business. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. For any feedback, suggestions, or questions you'd like us to cover, you can email us at krego at lxauk.com and on LinkedIn at karl-rego. Until next time, onwards and upwards. And thank you for listening. Rego's Review, signing off.